Okay, one thing I should tell you is I did not realize, I, once we sat around the table when we were planning, that we'd have some people, we have five of us, I think, who were in Gregory House last year. And so we were planning this out. I thought we were br with brand new people, so we're going to make some adjustments. There are some things the bishop does want us to, to do again, like we did the sacramental worldview and the mother church, but we'll have some other content as well as we work this, uh, work this out. We're going to talk about today Holy Mother Church, one of my favorites. Uh, I probably should sit down because of the unblocking your, your view. Um, I like to think I'm blocking your view when I stand up. Let me, li <laughs> let me live in the fantasy. Let me live in the fantasy. <laughs> yeah. I keep, you know, Brett's always complaining, you know, move down so I can see. But, uh, oh, I, then I wake up. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, this is one of the real things that makes us Anglicans, makes us Catholic Christians, is our, our understanding of one of the profound mysteries that, that's taught in Scripture, which is the church. You know, very often the church from certain traditions is sort of an add-on. You know, if you have time for it, that's fine, but the church is sort of a practical necessity. People have to get together, etc. But the church is looked upon basically sort of like an administrative entity. <laughs> uh, actually, the church is profoundly spiritual and absolutely inseparable from Christ. So this is a very important lesson to understand what it means to be a Catholic Christian. Frankly, what is the, let's start out with the meaning of the word church. Uh, the actual, in the, in the Bible, the word church is ecclesia in Greek, and actually Latin took the exact same word from the Greek rather than create a new word. Now, we all know, um, if you haven't taken any Greek or something in Latin, we know that ex, like exodus, means going out of, right? Ex, out of, right? And so what e ecclesia means, anything with places, like say epiclesis, that means a uh, call, you know, that means a call down, etc. means called. So it means the ones who have been called out. It's like when you say, hey, everybody, come here. Like this, come on, come on, we're about to start. That's, it. That's what it means, ecclesia, calling out. Ca like calling all the people who are scattered in the nations in Israel, the calling them together. In Latin you say convocation, con, you know, uh, you know vocation, calling, you know, vo vo you know, vocatio, calling. So it's, it's basically the people God has called out, brought together. Isn't that a beautiful image? The image is the people that God has brought together, called together. This is also the term that was used um, in the Old Testament, the Greek version, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You see, very, remember our writers who are writing the New Testament in Greek thought that the, the, the people they knew would know the Greek version of the Old Testament, so they typically use the terminology. This is what they would know. And so this is the, this is, uh, the kahal, the great assembly. Then it talks about, I'll praise you in, in the assembly, in the great assembly. Uh, this is what is used in Greek to translate the assembly when Israel comes together. You know, when Israel comes together, the assembly. Okay. Now, why is the church important? Because, again, normally we start with all sorts of wrong, I think this is sort of some institutional thing, some practical, yeah, it's practical necessity. You know, like paying your car insurance or getting an oil change. It's a practical necessity. No, no, no. Look at what it says about the church. Um, he, speaking of the God the Father, put all things under his feet, meaning the Lord Jesus, put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now look at how he describes the church, which is his body. Doesn't get more personal than that. It's it, uh, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church isn't a shadow of Jesus or a reminder. He says, where do we find Jesus in his fullness? The absolute fullness of everything there is in Jesus. The one, it's his church. That's where we find Jesus. I once uh, was asked to do a sermon about the church, and I, I couldn't help but think of the old story. And actually, accountants and lawyers have a word, uh, uh, 
uh, for this that comes from this. There's a good name named um, uh, Willie uh, Sutton. It's called Sutton's Principle. Uh, seriously, uh, I'll tell you with uh, accountants. But here's what it was. He's asked once. He was one of the most successful bank robbers in history. Back in the 30s, he stole $2 million, which would be about $30 million. And he's very popular because he's never killed anybody. Actually, we found out later he didn't, put guns, he didn't put bullets in his guns. I love this. He says, well, why didn't you put bullets in your guns? I said later. Somebody could get hurt. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> so he's sort of a popular guy. But they asked him at the end of his career, they said, hey, uh, you know, later, much later in his life, uh, why did you rob banks? And his one of the most famous answers was, well, that's where they keep the money. Why do you well, that's where they keep the money. So why do we love the church? Because that's where we find Jesus. So we look at it that way. Why do we love the church? Because that's where we find Jesus. You know, it's his body. That's the real answer. This is not like an add-on. This is where we find, look at this is a scripture, the church, the fullness. Not just, not just a wisp, not, you know, the fullness. Everywhere else we can see glances. We can see like, you glance somebody going down the street. Whoa, I just caught a glimpse. Where do I actually sit down and see Jesus in all his fullness? In the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that's why the church is so important. Everywhere else, we get shadows, we say it, but it's only in the church that we see him in all, in meaning all his power. You know, the power of Christ is in his church. So we're going to ask ourselves six questions today. What's the relationship between Christ and his church? What does it mean? We know we call the church the body of Christ. What that, Paul has a long discourse on this. He tells us, what does that actually mean? It, it's fundamental for understanding who we are as Christians. Fundamental. Then we have, what are the four marks of the church? You know, in Nicene Creed, we say one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And we go through those words, but each one is a profound word. What does it mean to be one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic? What are some of the biblical images of the church? You know, some additional biblical images we have in the church. When was the church born? You know, it came from somewhere. So where, where was the church born? And what are the lessons we can draw from, the practical lessons we can draw from all of this? So let's start, first of all, with what's the relationship between Christ and his church? Now, remember, we've been taught, we talked about the sacramental worldview. A sacrament is an outward sign of an invisible reality. Something very real, but something that's not immediately perceptible. And Paul says, you know, the church is a mystery. He said the relationship between church and Christ is a, a profound reality, but a reality that we can't see as, you know, as such. We can't see the thing itself. So he says, what's the visible sign? Where do we look? Where do we look for the flag in the wind? Where do we see this? You know, where do we see the indication? He says, marriage. He says, marriage is the flag in the wind. Now, why marriage? Is it tells us two things we're going to find out about the church. The church is Christ's bride, and that's really important. The church is not an it. We tend to look at church as a structure, as an organization, as an org chart. No, it's a romance. You know, bride isn't just a human being. It's the most special human being in your life, if you're the husband. Uh, it's not just, it's like you're saying your mother is just a mother. <laughs> you know, the, the, the bride is, 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 a, is a person. It's not an institution. You know, it's, a, it's an actual living reality, an organic living reality. It's a she, not an it. And it's actually the body of Christ. And one thing, our body, again, remember Jews, Especially, we share their view, that's where we believe in the resurrection. We can't separate soul from the body. The Greek looked at the body was just an add-on and a bad one, a terrible accident. The real person was our spiritual name. Remember we talked about with Gnosticism? In the body, who cares? That's just mess. It's embarrassing. 
And we don't believe that. We say body and soul ideally are inseparable, as we'll be for all eternity with a resurrection body in, you know, our, with God. They're, they're inseparable. That means the body of Christ is inseparable from him. It's not an add-on. It's part of Christ. It's who he is. Christ is fully Christ with his body. So here's the passage from Ephesians. I want us to walk through this. It's very powerful. He's talking to men and saying, why should a husband love his wife? It's sort of sad that we have to give lessons, but he's telling it in a profound way. Why should a man love his wife? He said, he who loves his wife actually loves himself. He said, no one ever hates his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. Now, we're, we're, you know, anyone who goes to the gym realizes all the guys who are spending all this time because they, you know, they want to be in shape. You know, guys really look upon you. They're really proud of being in shape and stuff. You know, men don't hate their bodies. They do everything, you know, to, to try to nourish them, you know, take care of them. And he said, well, Christ loves us like he loves his own body. You know, a husband should like his wife like he loves his own body. But that leads to a question. We might miss this reading the passage. The question is, well, that's like a bit, why would it be his own body? You know, you say, you know, your man loves his wife, you know, like, a, like you love your own body. You can take care of it. Because remember, he said, in the creation, this is what Paul's saying, what does it say about a husband and wife? It says, the two are joined to become one. So they really are one flesh, one body. So he says, it's not just like, oh, you know, otherwise it doesn't make sense. You should love your wife like you love your body. Well, that's a nice admonition, but it doesn't say it's a necessity. You say, no, they are. It's, it is. She is your own body. You are no longer, like Jesus says, you're no, they're no longer two. They're one. What God has joined together. So he's saying, just as you are no longer two, you love your wife because your wife is you. Remember what Adam says? I'm going to give you the quote in a minute where he, when Eve, Eve is, he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Not like, oh, here's a nice, oh, hey, nice to meet you. you know, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my, this is me. You know, in a very profound way. You know, this is us. You know, we're, we're more than just two separate, you know, here. So he's saying this, and he says, okay, so he said, this is what Paul White called, quotes Genesis here. He's saying, here's what I mean why I say you, a husband loves his wife like he loves his own body, because they are one body. And he says, that's what I'm saying about the church. He says here, this mystery is profound. I'm saying it really referring to Christ and the church. The church is Christ's body, and that means they're one. And why? Because the church is his bride. The church is Christ's bride, and because she's his bride, she's his body. That's important. It's because she's his bride that he's his body. So the argument, I summarize it here, is again, a man and woman become one body. At last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, they shall become one flesh. So a man can't help but love his body. You know, and his body is his bride. Therefore, the same way, that's how Christ loves his church. It's not an other for Christ. Remember when Paul is uh, on the Damascus Road, when he says, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not why you're persecuting my disciples. In Matthew 25, when he says, you know, whenever you gave, by the way, when he says the least of my brothers, we should be kind to everyone. But he is talking about members of the church. He says, you know, when you ever give a, a you know, to my, for my, you know, for, to least of my brothers, he's saying to do anything for a fellow Christian is to do it for Christ. Because it is Christ. It's my body. I was hungry. If a member, if a member of the body of Christ is hungry, Christ is hungry. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. And he's talking, whenever you did it to the least of my brothers, because my brother, this is my body, you did it to, to me. Now, this is why Jesus has 
constant, the most common comparison we have in the New Testament for Jesus is, is a bridegroom. Everything's in terms of a wedding. We start out the self-description. There, one day when the Pharisees are complaining, uh, they're saying, gee, how come, uh, how come your disciples, every, religious people fast? You know, John's disciples do, the Pharisees do. How come your people don't fast? He said, dude, dude's not in the Greek text. He's saying, when, <laughs> it's not hadudos or something. Okay. Uh, and so he says, look, you don't diet at a wedding. I'm putting in modern terms. It's rude not to eat the wedding cake. No matter if you're trying to lose weight, the one place you eat a piece of the wedding cake, it's rude. This is a celebration. This is not a time for anything other than celebrating. There's plenty of time to diet. You know, when you're out of the wedding, but not at a wedding. This is the time you hold up the glass, you know, you take the piece of wedding cake. And he says, how could they possibly be fasting when the bridegroom's there? And he's obviously the bridegroom. John the Baptist, when they're saying, hey, this guy has taken all our business. The guy you baptize is setting up his own shop. And he said, you expect me to be upset? Look, I'm the best man. The best man knows it's all about the bridegroom and the bride on the wedding day. I'm delighted they're having a beautiful wedding. You, don't, you get it all wrong. It's not about me. It's about him. So he compares himself to the best man at a wedding. That's what he's saying, the friend of the groom. Uh, it means the, the, what we call the best man. And then we have constant, the first, this is something very important. In John's Gospel, we have a reference to the, uh, Mary is never mentioned as such. We mention the mother of Jesus. That's not accidental because lest, John is big on signs, lest we get it mixed up at all. Taking nothing away from, from Mary is an important saint in the church, an example of obedience and things. This is not about her. This is talking about, in both cases, this is talking about an emblem. That's why he says the mother of Christ, generically. You know, so what's it saying? Is Matthew, is basically the whole story of the gospel in John is a wedding. And that's why the first sign is the feast. You know, is the wedding, is the reception. The first sign that we have the mother of Jesus was there. Not Mary, we don't say taking nothing away from Mary, but it's not about her. It's about the mother of Jesus was there to remind us, this is like, she, remember in, in, in Revelation 12, the woman with the child and things is the emblem of the church. And she gives birth to this child, and she has to be swept up and put a safe in the place, and it's the church. Israel, and Israel's extension, which is the church. You know, Israel gives birth to the Messiah, right, and the Messiah you know, has to be taken up. It's clearly the church is taking up. So we have here is saying that this is bigger than, there's not accidental, it was a wedding feast. To understand what John is saying, to understand what's happening to Jesus, is God in the Old Testament kept talking about Israel as bride. What he's saying is Christ is the bridegroom. God is coming to take his bride. So we start out with a wedding feast. And then what we have, we never hear or see of the mother of Jesus again until the crucifixion. Which actually is sort of, you know, actually the bride and groom go off and they begin their life together. That's what happens at the crucifixion. Is what happens, the, uh, we have the emblem there, is remember in, in Genesis, this is an important comparison in the fathers. Remember, first of all, Jesus tells us that death, that sleep has always been considered a symbol of death. You know, it reminds us that we'll die someday. For example, with Lazarus, when he said, oh, Lazarus, they're saying, hey, you need to get there, he's sick. And he said, look, Lazarus is asleep. And unless we have any doubts, the apostle, oh, good news, he must be healing then. You know, if he's been in such pain, he must be healing. No, no, he said, dudes, he's dead. You know, he's gone. So, you know, so Adam falls into a deep sleep. Well, Christ, we emphasize when he's dead on the cross. This is important. He's already died. They emphasize it. After he was dead, 
you know, they put the spear into, you know, into his heart, and what comes out? Water and blood. And the mother of Jesus is there. As this is saying, the water and blood is as Eve, when Adam is in a deep sleep, is taken from his side. And she becomes the mother of everyone who's born, the mother of all the living. The church, emblemized by water, why water and blood? John is a very late gospel. You know, the church is always, probably in the, in the last decade of the first century. And so the church has its regular, Eucharist is a regular part of the church. I can prove this to you like I'm Ignatius, you know, just 10 years later telling us, you know, here's what Christians always do. So we have the water, baptism, the blood. This is the sign of the church. For example, at the time of the Reformation, the great reformers, I said our articles of religion, said, where do we find the church? It says where the sacraments, where the word is rightly preached and the sacraments are truly administered. So we, where do we find the church? We find baptism, we find Eucharist, we find the church. And so what's saying is water and blood, which is an emblem of the church, come from his side. And Mary being there as the mother of Jesus being there is an emblem that this is something bigger. That's why he says to John, is this is, you know, the woman taken from his side is the church. And he says, son, this, behold your mother. Mother, behold your sons. So this is not about the Blessed Virgin. It's talking about the, you know, her as an emblem of the church. It's saying, you don't just have a father, you have a mother. You know, the, uh, the Cyprian of Carthage, one of the great martyrs, one of the great fathers of the church, said, if you have God as your father, you have the church as your mother. And so the church fathers love to say this. Everyone, Eve is the mother of everyone who's ever been born. The church is the mother of everyone who's been born again. Now, we have, uh, again, we have the ten virgins. We have the wedding guests. We have constant things. We have, uh, in, the, in the book of Revelation, we're combining the ultimate, you know, the ultimate uh, completion, the epitome of salvation is going to be the great wedding feast of the Lamb. In the culmination, the already becomes, yet, not, but not yet, the, the end of the not yet, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So what does it mean if, we're, if the church is the bride and the body of Christ? What does it mean to be... So the important thing about being the bride, that's what makes us his body. So it's not a metaphor, it's real. I mean, it's saying it's, just, it's true. He said they're no longer two, they're one because God has joined them together. And so if, what does it mean to be the body of Christ? First of all, how do we become part of the body? And it says baptism is what makes us part of That's how we enter into the body. Like, you know, in our bodies we have cell growth, right? You know, that's, we have new cells. How does that happen? It's baptism. Is for just as if the body in, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Our baptism, our birth in Christ, makes us a part of the body. It's like the birth of a new cell in the body. Completely integrated. But, you know, that's when we become part of the body of Christ. Eucharist. What Eucharist does is it takes what happens in baptism and strengthens it. The, the bread that we break is not, is it not a participation uh, in what, I'm sorry, I'm sorry here. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Look at the term, for, because we all partake of one bread. It says actually when we take the Eucharist, it actually strengthens us as part of the body. And that's a good analogy, right? Because you're born alive, but to stay alive and to be strengthened, you have to eat. So it's saying when we're born into the body of baptism and every Eucharist, you know, that body is strengthened. You know, we're, we're, our, our, our unity with that body is strengthened. This is what we call the communion of saints. Because actually, saints, in Greek and Latin, it's a pun that doesn't come through in English. The word that's used can mean holy things or holy people. 
the holy things are the bread and the wine, holy people are us, the people who take them. Those are the same, like communio sanctorum in Latin is the same thing for the communion and holy things, the communion of the holy people. So it's saying when we take the bread together, we become one body. And why do we associate that with dead people? Because the body is forever. You know, Christ isn't bound. He's not the Lord of the dead. He's God of the living. So once we're part of the body, we're always part of the body. That doesn't change with death. We're transformed. The church loves to say, have you ever heard the term church militant or church triumphant? The church triumphant simply means that part of the body, which is already with the Lord. But it's united with us, too. We don't lose our connection. So those who've gone before us, we're still united with them. Every Eucharist, we join them in praying. You know, all Christians throughout the ages are a part of the body. Those who join the Lord are still part of the body. The Lord is part of the body. He's the head. And us. We call the church militant, the ones who are still fighting the good fight. You know, using Paul's analogy. We're the church militant. And the saints in heaven are the church triumphant. But it's one church. It's sort of like this. Imagine a guy coming out of the swimming pool. Uh, uh, as you're coming out, your head comes first. That's Christ, the firstborn of the dead. All those who now follow him, you know, like his shoulders come out, right? Uh, uh, you know, and then, you know, and those who are still in the water, you know, are coming out. And eventually the whole body is, you know, we're coming out of the water. Okay. The waters of death and being subject to death, mortality. So what does this mean to be the body of Christ? Paul has a long explanation of this. So first of all, we're told that one body means we have many members. The beautiful thing when you look at a body is that you first realize is that what does a body look like? It looks different depending on what you're looking at, right? The hand is part of the body. Your head is part of the body. Your legs are part of the body. Your torso is part of the body. They're all equally part of the body, but they're not the same. It would be bizarre to have one giant eye. It would be something out of Mystery Science Theater or something. You know, the body inherently in a healthy body, difference is inherent. It's not inferiority. A good body needs all these beautiful things working. Diversity is of its nature. You know, a body, it's a desirable thing. A body that had just an eye or just an ear, and Paul's going to talk about this, would be a bad body. It wouldn't be very effective. It's actually a diversity that allows the effectiveness. Okay. So he says, we have many members, one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Complementary gifts. Again, this is a beautiful thing here because the body is richer because of the difference. And this is important for one of the reasons we love the church. Is First of all, why did God give us different gifts? One of the reasons he did is think of this. Is it says at the very beginning of the Bible, he made them male and female. Why? You know, God could have created a world where we could have asexual reproduction. God could do anything, right? We didn't have to have sexuality in order to have young. God could have made the world different. They could have done anything he wanted. Part of the reason he does this, he said, so a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, is the idea we need something to bring us together. It stops, otherwise we just go parallel paths. We never actually come together. You just do our own thing. And the essence of sin, by the way, when it talks about what salvation is, in 2 Corinthians, it says, at the end of times, what's happened? Everything will be subjected to Christ. And he will subject himself to the Father so that God may be all in all. So everything's moving together into the center. That's what salvation, we move, everything's being united in the life of God. That's what salvation is. And sin is the opposite. Sin is we just go off into our own orbit. We move away from the center. We move, it says of, it says of um, Judas, he went off to his own place. And so what happens here is to stop that from happening, 
We can't do it on our own. He made sure to give part, other parts of the puzzle to other people. We can't do the puzzle by ourselves. He did that as a gift. So we have, we need each other, just as man needs, needs woman in order to, to, to create new life. In the church, we don't have the, all the gifts we need. God has given you gifts I need for myself. He's given, he gives me gifts you need. He's given every, he says, everyone has been given a gift for the common good. So we don't look like the church as an add-on. Sometimes in, in, in evangelical world, sadly, we can look upon the church as, it's really me and Jesus is my salvation. And the church is sort of like a, a, a coin collector club. You can collect coin, coins by yourself and do a really good job. You could read all the stuff and really do a good job. But sometimes you like, it's fun to be with other coin collectors. It might include, you can trade off, you know, but it's not essential. You could be a great coin collector and never meet with anybody. You know, I could just think about Jesus and walk off in the trees and pray and I'd, things would be good because he's my personal savior. And the, the, the point is we're saying that's not how it works. So, so church is a plus. It's something I might go to once in a while to help give some steam, but it's not really something necessary. It's, it's a plus. It's like what the super gasolines, you know, instead of regular you have, what do they call them, a premium or something? I don't know what they call them. I'm so, I'm so poor that they, I, I don't even know what they call them, but they're, they're things that cost more money, which means things I don't buy. Okay. So, uh, so it's like this. So one of the things that we're here is we as Christians, why do, why do we come to church is because this beautiful thing, I know I have everything I need in the church, that every need I have is met there. Somebody has that gift for me. If I'm saying, what do I do? There's somebody who has the gift of discernment. The gift of pro is in the church. Somebody will have the word for me. That word can be confirmed. I mean, I have the gift, I have the prophecy. The gifts I need are in the church. So the church, has, you know, we look upon that. So that's a gift, that we have the gift the other needs. I love to tell people as a priest, and people often will complain, and it's a little bit about all of us. Often we don't like the gift we've been given. We'd prefer another gift. We look, we look sideways and say, boy, that's a gift. I wish I had that gift. And when people ask me and complain, I don't like the gift I've been given, they always say, what? You don't like it? That's great, because it's not for you. <laughs> then you'll have no trouble giving it away. Okay, uh, if, you know, it's the gift, we, uh, the gift we have. It's a reminder the gift we have is for others. It's, sometimes we think of spiritual gifts. Sometimes it's things just to entertain me. These are things that God's are my rewards from God, my consolations. No, no, the gifts are always for others. And the beauty, the gift of God for us, what consoles us is we get to be fellow workers with him and share that gift. We can become vehicles. But it's not just, a, like Paul said, you know, he said, tongues aren't just to feel good about praying to God. He said tongues have a meaning for the church. Okay. Now, another thing, membership in the body is not a choice. Paul says, uh, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. He says, if the eye should say, uh, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, that wouldn't make it less a part of the body. So he's simply saying, sometimes people want to pout, and simply saying, if I can't do this, then I'm out of here. And he's saying, you know, you can say whatever you want, it doesn't change who you are. Being a part of the body is a spiritual fact. It's a, it's a fact. You know, we're just, we're just being crazy. You know, saying, you know, there are people now who say, God bless these, these are dysfunctional people. We, 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 we feel their pain and things, but honestly, you can't declare yourself to be a man or a woman. That's just a fact you're gonna have to live with. That's how God made it things and how we, we simply wanna walk with you, but you can't change that by saying it. You can't say I'm not part of the body, you are. You can be a dysfunctional part of the body, like a paralyzed limb, but you're part of the body. The next thing, 
is it's God who assigns the functions. Again, we don't choose. We don't sit down and say, what gift would I like? That's why we talk about the discernment of gifts. God chooses the gift. You know, we just recognize what is the gift I have. And the gifts are all equal for God. You know, that's the important thing to realize. God is, is the opposite of the world. You know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that at the last judgment, you know, all the people standing on the stage and things, you know, I hugely admire our bishop and things like this, but I'm sure we're all going to be, see people we never, no one even aware of and saying, wow, God saw. And saying, wow, this is a, a woman after my own heart. Look at this, you know, like the woman he saw at the treasury, all these rich people, everyone saw the rich people putting in, he said, oh, they're so generous. And he said, Jesus right away said, look at this, guys. This is the most generous person here and no one knows it. So God, so again, one of the reasons we think it's about validation, no, no, in God's eyes, every gift. Mother Teresa Beauty, who I quoted endlessly, she said, it's, it's not what we do, it's the love we put in the doing. We can't all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. And that's true with God. So every gift is equal in God's eyes. What makes a gift special is when we embrace it, saying, Lord, if that's what you want me to do, then I'm here. That's exactly what I want you to do because you want me to do it. That's per that makes the gift beautiful. If I'm called to be a fingernail, I want to be, I want to be your fingernail. I'm honored. If you ever had your fingernail tore off, you'll realize how valuable a fingernail is. Okay. Don't ask how I know that. Okay. Uh, now, Christ is the head of the body. Two things about a head. First of all, the head is, uh, is part of the body. You know, it's, it's not like we think Christ, no, Christ is truly organically part of the body, but the head, okay, so that's important. The, the head is truly part of the body. He's not, we look about him, we're the body, but the Christ is, no, no, Christ is part of the body. You can't separate him from his body. Christ and his body are one. But that leads us to the fact that the head is different from everything else. You see, if you have neurological problems, you'll find out that if you're not properly connected to the brain and things, uh, if you ever had, uh, you know, suddenly other stuff doesn't work. It can't work properly. If you have a neurological, I wish I had a time where I had tremors. I mean, big time. I couldn't I had to hold my arm, you know, from a neurological problem. Uh, it was just one time it was a very scary thing. But, you know, if the brain's not working right, nothing works right. You know, our connection for any organ, our connection to how that organ works, or is our connection to the brain. It can't, we cannot do, the brain is unique. You see, if one hand's gone, it doesn't stop this hand from working fine. We'll be lost. We, well, the body wants to have two hands, but nonetheless, this hand can work perfectly fine without another hand or without a leg. If we lose our leg, our hands can work still just great. But nothing can work without the head. Without the head, nothing works right. And our connection, even though the head's there, if we're not connected, if the nerve connections aren't right, right, the nerve, which is the Holy Spirit, if that nerve connection isn't right, which is sending the commands out and things, then we're just paralyzed. We just sit there doing nothing or do the wrong thing. So that's why the head is unique. Everything. Uh, is plays into how our connection with the head. So the idea that church can do without Jesus is the silliest notion in, in history. Father Steve, okay. All members are affected by any member. So, um, the, um, so we say, anyone knows this, if, and all of you have had root canal or something would understand that, or think of something painful. Actually, root canal is a poor example because it has a reputation, but I've had it, it's not bad. There are really things that hurt in medicine, but that's not one of them. Okay, particularly. But imagine something that really, really hurts when you've been hurt or burned or something. Never mind the fact that the other hand isn't burned, if you burn this hand or something. You don't say, oh, who cares? I have another hand that feels fine. No, the fact is you can't help because the body knows if any part hurts, I hurt. 
And he says, truly being part of the body of Christ is like that. We can't be, we can't be neutral about it. It's like a parent with a child. We can't say, hey, my life's great. It's true. I have a, ch- a, son, a son or daughter who's into drugs and their life is, they, you know, they're living outdoors. We, you know, we, it's horrible. We can't say, who cares? I'm fine. No, a parent doesn't feel like that. They, they can never feel neutral. So in the church, we, can, we also rejoice and we rejoice in the success of others. You know, we're happy. When we have a healing, the whole body's happy. You know, we're all happy. Yes, that hand's good today. You know, or when we hurt. So it's something we all do together. Something that's really important when we, when we console people, that I want you to know is, because Christ, we're part of the body, that means Christ, he says, this is not a metaphor, it's real. And I, I told you before, Christ said, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And he's talking about the body, when you did to the least of these. This means that when we suffer, it's Christ, it's Christ suffers too. This is incredibly important to me in understanding suffering. Because so offering the worst part about suffering, honestly, folks, is the loneliness. It's terribly lonely, uh, especially with really big deals. When you get a really bad diagnosis and they tell you you have the tumor and things, you feel the loneliness you feel in your entire life. Why? Because you know no one else understands. Why do you say that? Because I was like them an hour ago. An hour ago, I was a regular person with a life, and I'd heard about this happening with people, and I said, I feel really sorry about that, and I thought I did. But it's different for being that person. Suddenly saying, one hour ago, I had a life, and now I don't. You know, the, you, you really f- you feel cut off. You're saying, no one can really understand this. There's an emblem of this, by the way, in the New Testament. When Jesus is in the garden, and the disciples really want to be awake, but they keep falling asleep because he's the only one dying the next day. You know, but in any one, there's a sense of this, and we can feel really alone, and we're not alone because, in fact, Christ is suffering with us. Another way, it can look like this. A lot of people really get angry with God when they suffer. It's, it's like this, if, uh, using a sports analogy of sorts. Is Think about like when you have football games, it's often in very bad seasons, you know, when it's sometimes even snow, it'd be really slushy and ugly out there, and they still play. Well, we have those sky boxes where the rich people are, right? And they're living like kings, you know. They're having their, they're having you know, hors d'oeuvres and beer, and they're, and you know, the poor guys are out there, you know, on the gridiron, you know, are are sloshing in the mud and the cold and getting hit and taking all these things. And these old old guys up there are like, try harder, you know. And you just want to say, what you don't know, but you know, they're doing nothing. They're just sitting there watching you, and like, you try harder. I paid for this ticket, type of thing. But sometimes we feel like look at God that way, like He's up there in heaven and just looking at us down. Hey, try harder. And it really changes things to realize uh, that, no, he's right there in the mud with us. And that's where Paul says, now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. He's not saying there's anything lacking on the cross for our salvation, but he's saying Christ, because we're his body, has agreed to take on our sufferings as well to the end of time. So we're never alone. And our sufferings, they have meaning because of Christ's sufferings. Anything Christ does has meaning. So it's not just I'm the only one dying from cancer or something. It means, wait a second, Christ is here. I once heard a beautiful story during the Croatian horrors uh, during the Second World War uh, with the Serbs and the Croatians and their uh, ethnic cleansing. And a horrible thing is, uh, you know, a woman found her husband nailed to a wall, you know, and, uh, and they say, where was God? And the old priest says, he was there. Right there, that's where he is. He's not out in the distance. He's, you know, so Paul's saying, I rejoice because in my sufferings, I'm not alone. These are Christ's sufferings. You know, everything the body 
uh, the, that happens to the body happens to Christ. So Christ knows that he's not disconnected with us. He's not a, a spectator. He's an active participant. Again, this is not about salvation. Everything was done, but it's about the fact he's, you know, he says, he considers that when, you, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Paul, why are, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, what are the four marks of the church? We said one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Let's look at each one of those. Those have profound meanings for us. First of all, the church by its very nature is we don't choose to be one. The church as a fact is one. For example, you might not get, God forbid, you might not get along with your siblings, but they are your siblings. Unlike friends or something, you can't de-sibble someone. <laughs> you can defriend someone or unfriend someone, but you can't unsibling someone. That's just a fact you're going to have to live with. Your parents are your parents and your children are your children. It's a fact. You can have dysfunctional relationships, but the fact is the fact. And so, we're, so Paul tells us in Ephesians, there is, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to you. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So this is the fact. So we don't have to, we have this idea, wouldn't it be nice if the church were one? Well, the church is one. You know, like we really are, but the fact that we don't live white, we not treat each other as brothers, doesn't change the fact that we are. Our DNA can prove that. So we've got it wrong. It's not like, gee, I'd like to be a brother or sister with that person. I am. I'm a bad brother or sister, but I'm still a brother or sister. The brother or sister thing's done. That's a really important spiritual truth. Because otherwise we start to sort of create constructions and say, try to make our own church. No, no. There's one church, a real church, and she's one. And that's why we're reminded in the fourth Eucharistic prayer we pray during Lent from St. Basil the Great. Remember, Lord, your one holy Catholic and apostolic church, redeemed by the blood of your Christ. Reveal its unity. So it's saying, you don't, don't create its unity, it's there. Reveal it so we can see what's, duh. It's like finding out that somebody really is related to you. This could happen after the Second World War with all the people who were lost, got mixed up, especially with Jewish families broken up and things. To find out 10 years later, you meet someone and find out that's your sister. I thought she said, no, that's your sister, Hannah. Yeah, and you know, these beautiful reuniting that have 10, 13 years later, that's your sister. Reveal the unity. I never knew. Yeah, you're related. Now, she's holy. Now, one of the trouble with holy is that we don't even know, first of all, we don't know what the term means. No shame, it's one of those terms everyone uses a lot and we assume people are gonna pick it up. Here's what holy means, holy is, the one characteristic that is unique to God. It's Godness, really. Holiness, you know, uh, uh, Kodesh in you know, Hebrew is Kodesh is, uh, is holiness. It means godly. It's, it's godliness. It's I mean, in the sense of what is God. You know, God's, God's godness is holiness. But how come other things are holy? Well, think of God as a fire, a new analogy God uses of himself. Well, a fire is, the fire only is the fire, but we associate the fire with light and heat. And guess what? If you're near the fire, you take on both. If you're next to the fire, you get warm. You can get really hot, right? And you have bright. You go near the fire so you can read. Like if you think on camping and stuff, you know, you, 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 know, uh, you can read and things. So, and, so holiness means, you know, God alone is holy. So we sing in here, only, God, only you are holy. We sing in holy, holy, holy. Only you, only you are holy. However, 
anything that approaches God takes on those qualities of light and heat. And that's sort of, yeah, that's sort of uh, uh, reflective, like the, the moon takes on the light of the sun. You know, it's, it's we take on the warmth and heat of close. And that's, so we also call that holy because it has the characteristics of God, light and heat, using the fire analogy. So it, we use holy to mean God himself, but also things that are set apart for God, that belong to him, set apart for God, or a characteristic of God. So God blessed the seventh day and made holy. So God set it aside, this is mine. I'm claiming this is mine. So it becomes holy. It takes on that special warmth, that special light. Because God claims it as his own. He brings it close to the fire. I have wonderful images because I was really, I was raised in the north and so I, was, I loved winter sports. I spent a lot of time outdoors in winter. I love, I love the cold in the winter. I love that. And I particularly loved ice skating. And uh, with ice skating, uh, because we had this great uh, pond that was really elaborate. It went out and had branches and things and an island and all this stuff. It was great. And we, I'd just uh, go hours. And we had this big warming house that had a, a roaring fire all the time. When you got cold, you, know, you go in there, and I still, to this day, it's one of those warmest, you know, you think of, they tell you to go to your safe place or something, and you go into these horrible medical things. And that's one of my places. I think of myself going into that place and sitting next to the fire, and suddenly you can even get toasty. Bishop, okay. We're ready to begin now. <laughs> but you've been well represented. Oh, sure. oh I'm talking about your... your... Always. Yes. Always. Okay. Uh, so speaking of the presence of your daughter here. Yeah. Oh, yes, I, yes. I think it is. Okay, good. Perfectly. Yes, perfectly. Uh, I was so surprised at first. I thought she'd be saying, I should have known better. Yeah. Okay. So holy means, so we have that idea that God is the fire. Only God is holy theologically. But again, anything that comes close to him, that he calls for his own, it's again being next to that fire, that roaring fire. As a matter of fact, I remember when I go into the, the warming house next to that big roaring fire, that I would actually, you, your, your pants would get hot, so hot they'd be like burning if they touch you. Whoa, too hot. You're getting, whoa, it's uh, closeness to that fire. Okay, then he would say, you know, like when he says, Moses, you're on holy ground. Anything really connected with God, God takes on his, so holiness means only God is holy. Holiness means Godness, but things that are really that he claims as his own or sets aside for himself, like being close to the fire, takes on the light and the heat. So those are, those are also called holy. Now here's an unfortunate thing. Holy is a good Germanic word because English is a good Germanic language. However, it's strongly influenced, again, over half its vocabulary is taken from Latin through French because of you know, the Norman, Norman conquest. So we have two words, two different things for the same thing. So the Latin word for holy was sanctus. It means the same thing as holy, heilig in German, holy. But, you know, it's simply the same thing. Sanctus is simply a Latin word for holy, heilig in German. That's where we get holy from, heilig. You know, and we have uh, sanctus in Latin. But because we have the French and things for church, we ended up having two different words that mean the same thing that often people don't connect anymore. They don't see the connection. So sanctus, in French, it came to be pronounced as saint. From all that's left is saint. It's pronounced, it's spelled S-A-I-N-T, but it was pronounced saint. You lost the C, you lost, you lost all that. In English, it was, they took the French word and pronounced it the way it looked, saint. So, you know, actually, Victor Hugo uh, once said, un unjustly so, of our language, of English, he said, uh, you know, English, when he looked at words like that, he said, it's just badly pronounced French. <laughs> That's unfair. Okay. But in any event... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he made it out of point. He made it out of point. 
but from our English Anglican perspective, yeah. <laughs> where you sit is where you stand. So the important thing here is to understand we often lose that completely. That when, uh, so when we talk about, you know, so that's why the favorite term, we'll see another slide, for, a, um, for Christians is saint. The word Christian is not used to describe Christians in the New Testament only once. We say that other people called them Christians. How do Christians refer to each other? They refer to each other as the holy ones, God's people. To be holy means belong to God, God's people, the holy ones. You know, to the saints at Corinth, to the saints at Ephesus, to the holy ones. So we have to realize, meaning, the ones have been touched by God. That when we run to them, we feel the heat. We feel the light of God himself. God alone is light and the heat, the fire. He alone generates light and heat. But when we're near these people, we, we now experience that, the, those qualities of God, his light, his heat. The fire is light and it's heat. And also we have Latin, Latin became, anything that has phi in it, coming from Latin means from Latin verb facere, uh, comes to, to make. So it comes from sanctus facere, means to make holy in Latin, it became santificare, santificare, means to make holy. So sanctify simply means to make holy. That's, it's, it sounds like a really funny, you know, French words always sound, the ones come from French are used. In English, we have this, one of the riches of the English language is you understand English has a double vocabulary. It has the largest vocabulary in the world of any language. Significantly so. Why? Because with French, it kept the English and it added the French words as fancy terms. So almost always we have a good English term and then we have a very fancy highfalutin term, you know, when you put on your church clothes, which is the French term. And you probably all know from, you remember English class, is the classic, our barn animals are the good Anglo-Saxon terms, right? It's pig. What happens when it gets to your table? It becomes pork, pork, French. You know, a cow, when it's out in the cave, what happens when it gets on your table? It's beef, boof. So, I mean, it's a classic like that. We have the fancy, that's why it's a funny thing if you're a French speaker, is a lot of times people think French is so beautiful, they keep saying, is because the French sound like they're speaking using fancy talk all the time. Whereas in French, there's no other way to say this. <laughs> all these words which sound to an English speaking person is wow. That is, you know, like they're talking like they're giving a speech. There isn't any other way. It doesn't sound that way to a French ear. <laughs> But anyway, I, I, I digress. That's a, that's a good. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. The thing that Paul says, such, such were you. So the whole emphasis of salvation is that we have been saved. Remember, there are three points of salvation. I used to love in the South because I love, I love all of my fellow Christians. And when people come up to me, I lived in the South for 10 years, and say, have you been saved? And I love when people ask that. Praise God, they're giving witness. Some people make fun of that. I said, I love it. And there's a brother or sister that cared enough about me to ask. I love, they cared enough about me to ask. Like somebody just mean, have you been saved? It seemed natural in that setting. And I said, oh yes, but I love to add, and I'm being saved, but I will be saved. Because the scriptures teach, for example, the, the earliest Christian, like Thessalonians, talks about we will be saved on the last day at Christ's return. Because of the completeness of our salvation is when we are with him in our resurrection bodies. Look at him, as we say in the beautiful canon, face to face. We're looking at the Lord face to face in our resurrection bodies. But already we have been saved. We've been washed with the blood of the lamb. We're part of Christ's body, you know, and we're being saved. Like the Jews and the Jews, they've been saved. Remember we said uh, the image in the New Testament is Salvation is like the, the exodus. 
we have the actual act of salvation is this, the Passover lamb being sacrificed his blood. That's the act of what happens on the cross. But that's not the end of the process. The promise of salvation is they would live in the Holy Land, the land promised to Abraham. That's where they're going. So, you know, yeah, they're still in Egypt. The Passover lamb has been, so they're still in Egypt. So what happens is, first of all, they have to remove from slavery, and that happens at the Red Sea. When they cross the Red Sea, why is it so important all the bodies wash up on shore? That's an important point. Because if they hadn't washed up, you can cross the Red Sea. We call them boats, or you go around. They would have just had one or two days head start. So the important why the Bible mentions that the bodies were washed up on shore means they were no longer in danger. They would never be slaves of Pharaoh again because he was dead. The armies, they would never. So, but they're still not there. They still have to go through the, the, the wilderness, and it's not accidental. Forty years, what does 40 years mean in Jewish tradition? A lifetime, a generation. A generation in the sense you're old enough to bear young and then for them to come and bear young. A generation, 40 years, 20, to bear young and for them to come bear a, a generation. And so this is the amount of we're baptized. As you invite, we're saved at the cross. That was a past act. We pass through the Red Sea, which is our baptism, we're told. That, and then we will never be under the domination of sin again. We've been freed from that domination of original sin forever. However, we still have a path. We still have to cross that desert, which is our life, until we're here, until we have that resurrection. And that's the last part of it. So we're being saved. That's happening even now. We have food for the journey, which is Eucharist. You know, baptism, you know, we, it's not, baptism, we're born, but you know, when you're born, you have to keep feeding a baby. Anyone, mother knows that. You can't say, oh, the baby's born, I'm done here. No, you have to keep feeding and nourishing that child. So God keeps feeding us and nourishing us, you know, he, which is the continuation of that. Life begins at baptism and it continues every time we're fed. You know, we're nourished. Until, but the final thing is when we cross that, you know, cross the second crossing. The second crossing, we cross is water, like the Dead Sea, we cross the Jordan, you know, and then we cross into the Promised Land. Okay, so, so the thing is, holiness is God, and we have the, we are holy, and I love that, again, it's very important. We're not denying that, we're, that it's not complete, but we, to emphasize, this is important for us as Catholic Christians, sanctification is something has happened to us. We're no longer like, we have a constant theme in the New Testament, we, you've been, you're dead to sin, we're told. We're told we're dead to sin. So why, you know, why are we focusing on sin? And also something else I'm going to tell you spiritually, forgive me, Bishop, you can stop me uh, going, but as a spiritual, it's really important. You know, I love the, the example of Peter. When Peter, you know, Jesus is walking on the sea, and Peter being Peter, I love him, I truly do, when he says, ask me to go out on the sea. It's just, so sure. He comes up, and as, as long as he's looking at Jesus, he's like God himself, he's walking on the water. When does he start sinking? He stops looking at Jesus. How do we know? It says we, he noticed the wind. Suddenly, instead of looking at Jesus, he says, wow, I'm walking on water. Wait a second. It's like one of those cartoon characters, like the coyote and things, when they're, when they're walking on, don't realize they're over a canyon. Whenever we focus on sin, we're not focusing on God. And sin is a temptation to focus on because it's narcissistic. It's still talking about me. It's still all about me. And so I think that the real, oh, we're not denying our sin that we need God. Our need, we should, be, we should be emphasizing our need, that I know that I'm not, you know, that it's not over, that I need God every single day, that I haven't done anything. But, but the idea of acting as though nothing has changed, you know, saying, ah, oh, no, I'm just sort of, no, that's not what the scriptures teach. This is joyful. We've been, we have been saved. And we're in the process of, he says, my favorite verses in all scriptures is, is 2 Corinthians 3.18, where it says, and looking at his image, we're being trans we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. 
So I think, you know, we don't want to deny the fact, we don't want to give people a false idea that sin is behind them in the sense that the domination of sin is behind us. Now, let me give you a practical example. I might have given the last time. Forgive me if I forget when I've done which. But it's really, uh, you know, people say, well, gee, isn't that sort of sophistry? I'm not, but I, if I know I still sin, but I'm not under domination, the, the domination of sin, what does that mean? And I'm going to tell you what, what it means and give you a, a proof of that from Scripture, from John, 1 John. I'll talk with, with young men, okay? For a young men, particularly with our sexuality, men are pretty into this stuff, of course, and in a, in a, in a very physical way, in a way that women aren't quite as prone to, thank God. But the, uh, what happens to those young men before, we, before we're at a stage of being married, those kind of things, we first discover our sexuality and things. If you were in the world, what would you be doing? You wouldn't be trying to avoid double takes at women and looking at things. You, you'd be looking for them. You'd be telling other people, you've got to see this show. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you've got to see this. Or here's the place. Or, you know. you'd, be, you'd be trying to feed the beast. You're, you're not running away. You're running toward and what happens as a Christian, we still face temptation, right? We want to do certain things, but, but the point is we're not. We're trying, we're saying no, we, we're moving in a different direction. So even if we're fall, we're moving in a different direction. We're moving towards the light. We're not under dominate. We're no longer living in sin. We're dead to that. So even though we're still falling, it's profoundly, it's not the same thing. And so John, that's why John says, he says, if we're walking in darkness, we can't, we're lying, we're not, we can't say we're in the, in the light if we're walking in darkness. But then he immediately says, if we say we have no sin, the truth isn't in us. It looks like a, it's not a counter. He's saying we're not under the domination of sin. We can't be living in darkness. But he says, it's not all over. You know, if we say we have no sin, he said, but we have an advocate. So it's an important spiritual truth. So we focus on the fact is, uh, we focus on hope. The answer is we always look forward. Hope is looking forward. We trust in God's promises. We're not ashamed of our need because we know every need shows we hear something God will provide. But I wonder, okay. So sanctification is we're the holy ones. And so by very nature, the church is one. Oh, wait, I went backwards, excuse me. So how has the church been made holy? He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. So the church is holy because Christ has made her holy. You know, Christ, who is the very fire, he's God, you know, has given her his warmth and his light. He has made her holy by the washing of water with the word. And we are saints. We are, and the, the, the way Christians always identify themselves in the New Testament is the holy ones. We're the ones who are now feeling that light. We're walking in that light and we're feeling that warmth. We're the holy ones. Not in the sense of holy that we're, we're, we understand. Here's the difference. The trouble with self-righteousness is we think we are inherently holy. We think we're the fire. You know, I'm just in an extent. No, no, no. The real fire is, no, I'm holy in the sense that God is doing his work in me. And when people see good things in me, all they're feeling is God's warmth. They're feeling, seeing his light. It's not me. I'm just close to the fire. So that's where the difference is. You know, if I think that holiness means I'm the fire, I'm a fool. If I think holiness, I'm near this fire, and guess what? It changes me. It's me every, the longer I stay here, I'm getting warmer and warmer. And actually, you know, that's, that's moving on. You know, that's, I can recognize this. The other, the other warm people, the other people walking in the light, the, pe the other people around the fire. Okay, and that, again, 60 times it's used in the New Testament to describe Christians. No other term is used, or some, except brothers and sisters. You know, but, you know, we never, the term Christians only say other people call them Christians. Okay. 
not saying it's a good term, but I'm saying we, we should wonder again. I, we look at the primacy of the scriptures. If the scriptures thought it was so important to look upon Christians this way, there's a message. I think that's the point you're making. There's a message here. The church is also reasons, you know, if you, what's the place that's really warmest and, and lightest? The fireplace. Right? The fireplace is where the fire is. So by definition, in the church, because it's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, is holy for that very reason, because that's where God lives. And when the fire is right there, you better believe it's going to be hot and hot and bright. And he talks about the dwelling. This is where God lives. And also, remember we said there, there are two different means. We said that a sacrament in Greek, a mystery, is an invisible reality or something that indicates a visible reality. But we said also there was a specialized sense where it could be, and sometimes it was an effective sign. It was something that actually made things happen. So the church is not only a sign of where we find Jesus. It actually is a sacrament. It's an effective sign. Why? Because it has the sacraments. So the church isn't just where we see Jesus. It actually does the stuff Jesus does. It's sanct- the church is where we find that. This is why, again, what did the reformers say? We're proud of being a church of the Reformation. And we have it in our 39 articles, of course. Where do we find the church? Where the gospel is truly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. You know, so we have Christ at work in his sacraments in his church. He's working other ways as well, but he's at work in his sacraments in his church. That's where, that's where we find the new birth, where we're born into the church. That's where we're nourished at God's table is in the church. So the church itself is a sacrament. The church itself makes this a reality. So that, why is the church Catholic? This is very important. Catholic in Greek, Catholicos, is whole where it means related to something, emphasizing related to something bigger. And so here's the first thing. The Catholic faith is the entire faith. One of the critical things about heresy, which makes it very, very hard, is it's like this. In our bodies, what is cancer? Cancer is taking something which is, which is vital to life. Cell reproduction is essential for human life. If our body doesn't reproduce cells, we die. We must reproduce every cell in our body. So we have a system of reproducing cell reproduction. Cancer is when that goes crazy. When the very thing that would give you life kills you. It just goes out of kilter. It just goes crazy. And so in a way what we can look at is heresy often takes a truth. Sometimes they're just out and out lies. But another form of heresy is we take one truth to the exclusion of other truths. We decide, no, that this is the only truth I need. Like, we can get rid of the other stuff. I'm just focused. I know this is true. And one of the things that makes it more deadly is one thing I learned. I was an auditor. And one of the things they taught us <laughs> is good liars, the best liars tell the truth selectively. They know better than to say things are going to get caught up, things that can be proved wrong. So what they do is they just tell you part of the truth. And then when you see that part is confirmed, you think everything is true. So I was told as an auditor, it's just a basic thing out there. Remember, the best liars tell the truth selectively. So what happens here is we're saying the Catholic faith is the entire truth of the gospel, not just my favorite portion. And like I say, we know that God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. Sometimes people say, no, I prefer the cosmic Christ. Oh, no, I prefer Jesus, my best friend. They're both true. But we can't, if we choose one at the extent of the other, if we, oh no, you know, when we make Jesus just another human teacher and things, it's no longer the real Jesus. It's not the real thing anymore. 
And so, you know, an important thing here is that it's the Catholic faith means the entirety of the faith. We don't pick and choose. We can't just say the joys of heaven and deny hell. That's a sad but necessary reality. We've got to tell people. What would you think of a parent who didn't tell people the sad facts of life and the bad things can happen to you? Yeah, I remember having the talk with each of my boys, and the talk would be, God made some beautiful things for us. But these things, by, because of sin and things, actually could be our destruction if we let them get out of hand. That's what sin will do. Our sexuality, this is beautiful. This is going to give you a family and children and join you with your wife. It's one of the most beautiful things we have. But there are people who really get into sex for itself, and it destroys their lives. They, they never have close relationship. It hurts their bodies. It's horrible. Drugs are beautiful in the sense that drugs are medicine. And believe me, I lived in a family that didn't use medicine much. It was one of the French-Canadian things. I thought there was sort of a virtue in that. I, when I discovered you could take cold medicine, it changed my life. <laughs> uh, but I say, you know, we could, but we could take these kind of, you know, things and we can, we can twist them, uh, you know, we're wrong. And saying alcohol, it says he made wine to gladden the hearts of men, you know, in, in moderation or thing. It's a beautiful thing of God, his very first miracle. But I said, Lord, the, bo the bodies are everywhere of people. So I'm saying, but... So the whole point is we wouldn't say by telling, leaving out unfortunate truths. You know, one of the things you have to tell your kids is there's bad stuff out there. You have to tell people about, you have to be careful some adults. You know, you can't, not all adults, you can't trust just everybody, you know. So, you know, a church that thinks we only tell good news is not telling the whole gospel. Remember Paul in Ephesians, he said, I told you, well, we have the quote here, I think. Uh, or, no, I don't. Yeah, the whole counsel of God. I told you the whole truth. I'm blameless. Like Ezekiel says, you've got to tell them the truth or you have to blame to you. The whole truth. The whole the, the Christian faith is we need. It's the Catholic faith is the entire faith. The popular stuff that God loves us, and the, and the unpopular stuff that we can botch it. That God expects. He says, "Friend, why aren't you wearing a wedding garment?" We have to tell people that's all good news, but we have to tell people the whole story. And the Catholic faith does that. Ken, if I can we, underscore this, this is this is extremely important for you all. Um, So, first of all, personally for us, uh, this is the greatest theological biblical shift. The greatest. It's so great. You may think you're far along in it, but I can promise you you're not. Um, because I'm still, I'm still embracing and understanding this. I haven't been raised in a Catholic perspective, a small C Catholic perspective, um, being raised in a mainline Presbyterian mm -hmm. church. I did not get this. And even if I begin I'm still embracing this understanding that so what's really important to Ken teaching into is and as we discover what the reformed Catholics, whenever I folks feel okay about that because they actually could have come, they're like, okay, great, we reform. Um, all the brothers have said that themselves. But you gotta keep in mind that the reform is the adjective, and Catholic is the noun. And that really matters in your writing people. So the base reality is that we are Catholic Christians, um, which is to say according to the whole we live out our faith in Jesus according to the whole, according to the wholeness of the Trinity, according to the wholeness of the whole Scripture, yes. according to the wholeness of the universal Church. It's Ken talking about it, this is huge. Not only is this huge for you personally, 
This is also absolutely huge for the good news of Christ in humanity. It's massive. So if God's given us any kind of subterranean mission here in Houston, it's this. This is why I think we're here, not somewhere else. Um, why God didn't look at us, he could have put us anywhere. I mean, several years ago, we were mobile. We could have put our building anywhere in the western suburbs, and we would have gone. We thought we would be mobile operation here. Mm-hmm. He put us right in this new target. Why? Why? Because mere Christianity, and we embrace that phrase, isn't enough. Mere Christianity is not enough. <laughs> what you've got to have is the fullness of the Catholic faith. Um, and so it's in circles like this where I have to explain this and panic and explain so clearly. It's even hard to do the confirmation class because there's so many wires that get tripped and there's so much confusion that can come. Um, and and, and that it's really important you all understanding this, that we're Reformed Catholics. And um, I, I, I say I'm a Catholic without any, mm-hmm. you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, behind my back, you know, above my fingers. I don't really mean that. Um, and, of course, our, in our relationship to our older sister, Rome, who would be really older sister to you, Sandra, were older sisters to us, or to Peter and to Andrew, for us as the, the Paul's expression of the apostolic faith. You know, our, our humble pushback, and it is humble, but it is a pushback, is you're not Catholic enough. Yes. We don't think you're Catholic enough. You're not actually taking into consideration according to the whole. So 19th century Roman Catholic dogma around some of the Marian dogmas, for example, mm. and papal perspectives, and, but honestly, Anglican orders, um, is not according to the whole. Um, your, your papal leaders at that point, and the very fact that you can give your papal leaders that kind of authority, that's not according to the whole. The East has never allowed for that, and they're massive. They've never allowed for that. So even how we handle things like contraception, for example, as Anglicans, well, we have written on it, and Shannon and I have, have, have hewn out of years of work a mm-hmm. statement on Anglicans' use of contraception. We're actually quite careful about it, because the East doesn't agree on our, mm-hmm. on our we actually were more aligned with the Romans yes. than this one. Um, the East doesn't agree with us, so we're actually careful in that. Why am I so bold about preservation of priesthood? Am I just a crank about it? I, don't, I hope not. I'm bold about it because it's Catholic. Because, because when you look at it according to the whole, you've never had, you have the Eastern Church that there's no Roman priest, you have a Roman Church that there's no Roman priest, you have the Anglican Church from 1974 there's no Roman priest, you have a massive conservative Protestant church where there's no women's whatever phraseology they use. So I'm passionate about that. You'll hear me get pretty strong about this, but I'm frankly trying to defend the Catholic faith. Yes. I'll be less passionate about contraception, even though I think it's important and I want to pastorally reduce it. I want folks to grapple with it. I think practicing natural family planning within a marriage is extremely important. I will not go to the mat. I, I will not like I've all known the matters, because I don't have the same level of Catholic witness that I do in the matters. So this informs, so this is one of those things that people go, oh, I don't like that, or I don't like this. Um, or people are like, you know, I want res without, well, I want res, but I want women priests. You'll never get res. Res is res because we're Catholic. With the five S's. But res is res because we're Catholic. According to the whole, which is the five S's, the whole church, all five S's. So thank you, Shannon, for letting me oh, thank uh, you. interject yes. energy here from me about this. There's a lot of energy. 
speak and defend it. I'm going to object to my own yeah. personal energy. But I have realized in the last few months how important it is for what God called us to do and why this is a revival of William Sackham. If you could call it carefully worked out a Catholic revival. Amen. That's what we're about. Is that accord with what you're thinking, Janet? Perfectly. Actually, I would say the same thing. The reason I'm, I come from a Roman Catholic background, and I love Rome, we honor, her. we honor her, and especially for us, it was a national thing, you know, it was French Canadians and things. But I'm, I'm a convinced Anglican because I don't think the Roman Church is Catholic enough. And that's why I'm an Anglican. Uh, you know, I just think it's, it's too narrow, it's limited. Uh, you know, that uh, this is, is the Catholicity of the Church that I think we defend better than anyone. So this is part of what you guys are, are will be in, as the Lord leads you, will be wrestling through what this The second part of universal, and this is uh, important. Look, Paul talked about rule in all the churches. Something very important in the entire church early on is everyone, even heretics, agreed there was one church. Christ is one body. There is one, the idea of congregationalism is utterly unknown in the, in, the, in the early church. It's just simply not known. Everyone presumes that to be a Christian is to be part of the one body of Christ, which is in not just a... Uh, talk like we talk about humanity or something. No, a real group, the real live people in different places. It's the Church of God at Corinth or the Church of God at Ephesus. But there's one Church of God. This is why Paul just talked, he'll even talk to a church he's never been to that he didn't found, like Rome. He sends them a letter. Because it's still the one church. It's not like these are my churches because I founded them. You know, those are your churches. He writes a letter to Rome, a church he's never been to. He didn't found it. And he talks to them. Why? Because it's one church. He's an apostle of the one church. So the first... First, so it's a cross. There is only one, you know, one church. And also, the entrusted to you, it's across time and space. In theology, we call it diachronic and synchronic. Diachronic means across time, meaning it's like this. Part of the reason, you know, uh, you know when, if you're a, uh, think of your family, you're related to your brothers and sisters and things. That's true. That's synchronic in time, right? Now, there are all these people you're related to. But the reason you're related to them also is because you're connected across time. You know, I have a father, and he had a father and a mother, you know, and they had, that's why. You know, that's, so it's not just now, it's, it just came out of nowhere, that it's, it's connected to something. My being a part of this family is the fact I didn't just pop out of nowhere. I'm part of something, so it's across time. And the visible symbol of that, we'll talk more, when we talk about ordination, we're going to have a whole thing on ordination, is uh, we're going to talk about our connection has been, that's why... We were called, during the religious wars in England, we were called Episcopalians, where the term came from, because we believed in the Episcopate. Because the church, we're going to find this out, is said that the sign where the bishop is, there is the Catholic church. Where do I find the Catholic church? The bishop is the idea is, with the apostles, is that we have, across time, from one generation to the next, you know, we have the laying on of hands, nothing magical about that, but the faith has been transmitted in a live organism. And so the fact is to be part of the church is to connect across time and across space, both. We're not reinventing the church. The church is. And we can become part of that family. We can, we can graft on it. We can graft onto that tree. But we don't just, oh, let's plant a new tree. No, no. It's always grafting. One of the reasons the Anglican church is so beautiful for this is, like, we've had churches that have come from free church backgrounds. They can come into the, the historic Catholic church and be grafted in. That's what we have with Church of the Bridge Church. It could be grafted in, so it takes the full benefit now. It takes of this one church across time and across space. 
the universal witness across time. We call that diachronic and across space, synchronic, all at the same time, right now. Now, it's, it's apostolic. This means two profoundly uh, important and different things. First of all, it's in continuity with the apostles. The household of God built on the foundation of the apostles. So we're not adding anything new. Uh, we'll talk about this later, too, in our studies about Vincent of, uh, of Lorraine. Uh, how is it? Lorenz, I guess? Yeah, okay, Lorenz, uh, whatever. Um, I've never actually heard his name pronounced in English. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's call it Vincent of Lorenz. Okay, but uh, he uh, said, he said first, he said first, he talked about the, how do we know the true faith? And he said, first of all, it's the scriptures. He said, scriptures contain, he said that contain everything necessary for salvation. He's the ultimate Anglican, everything necessary for salvation. But he then says, but wait a second, what happens when heretics when we don't read the script, you know, are saying, they try to interpret scripture in a way that's different from everybody else. They come up with this brand new thing. And he said, no, no, it's as it's been understood, always everywhere by everyone. You know, how the, all of us, how the church has read it together. But then he said, does this mean, so some people, people like to attack this because they don't finish the rest of the sentence, he said. Does this mean that we can't have any development that ever since, you know, the end of the, you know, the undivided church that, you know, we're just stuck, we can never, no, no, he said, the church naturally grows like a little boy. He used example like a child. You know, all of it, with babies, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, I look different than I did, I'm still as tall as I was as a baby, but I look, otherwise I look different, I didn't have the beard. Okay, but in any event, is as you grow up, <laughs> as, as you grow up, uh, the fact is, he would say that, you know, that yes, that we can grow in our understanding of that faith, but it will never be something new. It will always have been in the original. He said, we might, the arm might look bigger, but there was always an arm. It was always there. It's not new. He said, it doesn't have three arms, it has two. It doesn't, you know, he doesn't have two heads, it has one. So he said, that's how we know, we, that's what we call organic growth. So we're not saying, some people try to mock, a, you know, in this way, try to give a, a false, a straw man argument and saying, you're saying nothing can ever, we can ever, no, 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 quite the opposite. A baby that doesn't grow dies. We, the church has a far deeper understanding of those truths as we've gone along. We're proud of that. But they're the same truths. It's not like we were all wrong about the sexuality thing. You know, I guess, you know, what the Bible calls an abomination is a, it's a beautiful thing from God to be celebrated. No, that's not the same thing. That's like a 20th head. You know, that's, that's not the same thing at all. You know, we, we, the, the, nice, the Nicene people got it wrong. You know, you know, no, no. Do you see the difference? So we're saying, he's saying, the scriptures, you know, the first thing is we always look to scripture. Everything we need for salvation, that's a fundamental rock of faith, is in the scriptures. How do we, when, when people disagree on, 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 on the scriptures, we look at how has everyone understood them? You can't be the first person. If the whole church has, has understood Jesus as truly God and truly man, you, you can't say, oh, I guess we're, miss, I'm now looking at it and I think they have that wrong. That can't be wrong. The whole church understood Jesus as truly God and truly man. And, and finally, what do we do? Uh, uh, you know, what about, we can, we can grow, and that's what theology is. We like to grow and get even deeper. Now, that's why our bishop is our chief theologian. One thing I love in the early church and patristics is the, the, the great church fathers are almost always bishops. It's part of their teaching office. They bring us, that's what we, every time we, the, the bishop preaches to us. And those, you know, or Father Bread was, you know, who's appointed, or Father Mather are, are preaching to us. They're sharing the thing. They're giving us even deeper into an understanding of the, but it's the same truth. It's not something new. It's not like, you know, we've got all got it wrong. Or here's something brand new that's out of the heart of our faith. 
sometimes in liberal Christianity, they've tried to use the Holy Spirit as being a, a sort of an entrepreneur. Is, this brings us into a new Christianity, a third age. No, no. Jesus told us the Spirit will mind us everything I said. He'll say nothing he doesn't, hasn't heard from me and from the Father. There's no new faith. He simply brings us deeper into, he reminds us of what the Lord and helps us to get a deeper understanding. He doesn't bring us into a new thing in the sense of new and, Jesus didn't know anything about this. No. Jesus is God's final word. That's why there's no, when, that's the John of the Cross. You know, there's no further word because God said everything he had to say in Jesus. He's the perfect, complete word of God. I'm sorry, I, go, I get off, I get, I get really excited about the church. Okay, <laughs> biblical images of the church. Why? Because I get, I'm excited about Jesus, and that's where I find him. Oh, the church is a sheepfold. I love this, and the door to the field is, if you're a sheep, it's a pretty scary world out there because you have virtually no way to defend yourself. The sheep are really helped. They're truly outgunned by their natural enemies. I mean, a sheep are, that's why you don't find wild sheep. <laughs> you don't find feral sheep. <laughs> There are no feral sheep. <laughs> I mean, and so when you're a sheep, all you're saying is, I am outgunned, I'm outclassed, there's no way. And so the church is the safe place where as a sheep, I know I'm safe. And one of the things we call our bishop our overseer, but we miss the thing. I, I, if I haven't mentioned, I've got to mention this again because we don't understand the Greek. Episcopos, you know, episcopos. What it means, epi is over, well, looking over. We translate it as overseer, but the trouble in English, the word overseer has one meaning, which is only half of the Greek meaning. In English, the word overseer means boss. You know, the overseer is someone watching you and saying, you know, he's your boss. Hey, get on this. Come on, this is due. He's your boss. Overseer in Greek also has the sense of like a shepherd is an overseer, and he's not the sheep's boss. It means he's the one looking out for them. He's like the watchman looking out, like in Ezekiel. He's the one watching out for us, watching where the enemies are coming from. Like remember when we had Father, when Father Steve was just was, was ordained, it said your job is to fight off those enemies of the church, to be zealous for that. He, his job, every priest, especially the bishop, because we're all, all priests are simply uh, deputies of the bishop, because you know we're just deputies is to fight off those wolves. We have to, he says, it's not enough to be hanging out here, and uh, you need to be looking out and fighting off the wolves. So the thing is, so the sheepfold is the one place as a sheep you're safe. Otherwise, you're just exposed to every enemy, every heresy that comes around, every false teaching. The church is the place where you're safe, and Christ is the door. The next thing is the household of God, and this is a richer image than we have. Here's why. We're very rich people. No one has ever lived like people did in the 20th and 21st centuries. For example, the idea of the nuclear family is unknown in the sense of that you live with nobody else, just you. You and your, you and your spouse get together and form a brand new, and you're just living alone by yourselves. People couldn't afford to do that in the ancient world or even in the modern world. You had maiden aunts, and you had your parents who took care of the kids as you went out to work. You know, the household, then you had servants, you had people. The household was a mini community of people who were profoundly connected. But it's much, much wider than people, you know, it's a whole bunch of people were part of the household. So the household isn't just your, you know, people you're directly blood relations with, it's people, uh, odds and ends of, of disconnected family members, again, a maiden aunt had nowhere else to go, this kind of thing, she'd come back, or widow would come back, uh, you know, the grandparents would be there because, frankly, we're regular people, you couldn't, my father, blessed, uh, it's a French Canadian thing, he said, say, there's no place on the, on the boat for people who don't row. 
Uh, it sounds better in French. But in any event, there's no place on the boat for people who don't row. Means that you know that basically in the ancient world it was so hard to make a living that uh, that the, the grandparents, when you're too old to physically work and things, you take care of the kids and do the kind of stuff that didn't require that. And people like women often do very important parts in agricultural work. They were out doing a lot of physically hard things that granny couldn't do. Who'd spend a lot of time with the kids, so the families were really pretty, pretty extended. And with rich people, you had servants, and it was a whole mini community. That's why when the churches meet in houses, the houses, Roman houses, would be pretty big because the the peristylum is where the central part was a was a big thing because they were pretty big. They weren't just like a little nuclear family, like a living room, you know, for for those you know for those, for those Romans. Members of the household of God. The next thing they have God's flock. So uh, you know the flock of God. Is so, this is beautiful. It's like I love in the South sometimes. Uh, there's one church, the um, uh, West, Westwood Baptist Church, that said, it said the Westwood Baptist Church meets here. And I love that. What they were trying to make a profound spiritual truth, I love from them, is the church is us. It's not the building. And so that's reminding us, we're not just, we're in the house of God, God's protected, but the church is the people. It's the sheep. So remember, also the sheep. We're not just, the, you know, the, you know the, the, the sheep themselves are the church. So we have the two different images. Yes, it's the you know, we feel safe within the church, but we not only are within the church, but we are the church. We're also the flock. The field or house. I love this. It tells us that the, the church is a work in progress. You know, all bodies grow. When you stop growing, you die. You know, the minute you stop. And so the, is the field, it says it's, it's God's field, all the agriculture. We're, we're, we're husbandmen. We're out there. We're, we're sowing the seed. We're, we're reaping. Right? We're, 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 we're doing all the agricultural things and bringing out a crop. Or we're like building a house. The, the analogy is we're building a house together. We're in construction. You know, we keep building up from the foundation. We keep building a new level, new level. And we're, it's all coming together. And in the ancient world, what was really neat about this is... Um, is that one of the things they did because of limitations and things, they often had these arches, you know, as a way of holding things. And so building up until you had that final stone, you weren't really finished. That was the keystone. The keystone, actually, one of the things that Father Brett once explained in sermon is uh, this word is an ambiguous term in Greek. Uh, so something can be either a cornerstone or it could be a keystone, it could be the thing that holds up the arch. So if you wonder where it says, for example, that it compares Jesus to the cornerstone that you could trip over, but it also talks about if that falls on somebody, saying, well, how can a cornerstone fall on you? Well, at my height, it could. Okay, but for the rest of you, uh, you say, how can a cornerstone on the ground fall on you? No, you can trip on it. You know, so if it's up here, it can fall on you. If it's down there, you can trip on it. Okay. But I, I, I digress. Okay. Imagine that. Okay. <laughs> now, a people are a nation. And I love this. This is uh, the idea of that we're... Uh, a people is people with profound things together. The world we recognize, it's a, it's a lot bigger than us. It's bigger than a household. We won't know everybody in a nation, right? We won't know everybody in a nation, but it's still us. It's a, one of those experiences I remember once. Uh, I used to take the cheapest airline over to Europe was Icelandic Airlines. So everybody would take it. You have to go through Reykjavik, and then you go to, to Luxembourg. And I remember we, we got on, a, we got, all of us, a whole bunch of us got on a, a lot of people on a train to Metz in France. It's spelled M-E-T-Z, but it's pronounced Metz, like a big mess. Okay, that's how it's pronounced, Metz. And we have the train station Metz trying to figure out how to go into our different places. And people hadn't met each other, but somebody spoke American English. And immediately all the Americans, you know, heads lift up like another, there's one of me here. And they felt really at home. I mean, they, people are sort of lost because they come late. The, the plane had been like nine hours late. People missed their connections. They didn't know what to do. And they suddenly felt, okay, it's, they never met these people. But it's us. 
it's people from home. They speak my language. They're my people. You know, I can just, you have that sense. And so the nation is bigger than household. It's bigger than anyone we've even met. We see these people, we know it's us. Like when the bishop goes to Nigeria, he sees people he's never met. And this is not other people, they're us. They're just over there, they're us. I recognize it right away. They speak my language, they're my people. So when was the church born? Quickly we have, the birth process is threefold. First of all, we have delivery. And then we have the child has to take a breath. One of the first challenges, the child has to take the first breath. Um, I had a child where that didn't happen right away, and boy, you should see the, when they, they come in, you know, really doing something. You know, we have a, you say, well, we're in distress, <laughs> and they come in with the machines and this kind of stuff. It's, it was a happy ending, you know, but it would happen very quickly. Uh, you know, so they came in. We were at a hospital. We had the birthing room. You know, everything there. It's, it's amazing. Suddenly, when things go wrong, this converts into an operating room like nothing. It's just amazing. It, all those machines come out of nowhere. But in any event, the idea is you have to take your first breath. But you're still, what's, what do we all wait for? The baby to cry. That means, what the cry means, it's trouble with breathing is it's two things. You have to breathe in, but you have to breathe out too. You can't take another breath until you give back the one you had. It has to go back and forth. Breathing can't be, well, oh, I've, I have my breath, I'm done with that. It's going to be forever. I, I receive and I give. It's only by giving I can receive again. In and out, in and out. So what we have is the church, we said, is born from the side of Christ. She's taken. You know, it's, it's the death of Christ which makes the church possible. It's only his, his sleep of death that allows the church to be born. There could be no church that way until then. But the church, what happens on the very night of Easter? Jesus says, receive. The, he says he breathed on them. He, you know, breath. He breathed on, received the Holy Spirit. So the church receives his authority and his power. His life, his, its full authority and its power, it receives on the night of Easter. But they're still, what is, they're still stuck in the sense they're still stuck in that upper room, right? And so what happens here is on the first cry out that we're waiting for to know is Pentecost. And Pentecost, the process is complete because what we receive, we now give. The breath, and then we have this power, whoa, to the nation, this voice comes out, speaking to the whole world, going out to the nations. The Holy Spirit is released to the apostles. That's the process. That's why we often say that the church is born on Pentecost, but it's, that's the completion of the process of birth. It begins at, at Calvary. You know, it, it, we take in that first breath of life. Jesus, he breathed, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins, it's saying how full we receive. Whose sins you forgive, they're forgiven. You've received the full life of God. But still, it has, we have to breathe out. It, it breathes out in mission. You know, it has to go the way. You can't hold the breath for yourself. Oh, I'm, I'm fine, I have my breath. It has to go out in mission. So the proto-church, another thing that really helps, I find we talk to people who don't have a strong vision of the church, is they often have, I would call it the fan club view of the church. Is what this is, is when you have, you might have something like, I'm an old guy. If you're really a fan of something like the old rock groups or something like this, you can really, you might even get together with other people, you know, who are fans and things of these kind of people and, and say, let's go to concerts together if they're still around doing these things or, you know, sort of share information. People do that kind of stuff because saying, yeah, those are good days. I like to think back, remember the good times, sort of relive them. And sometimes people look at the church like that. You know, Jesus used to be, that's the idea that Jesus used to be here and he's going to come back again, but he's left us orphans. You know, we're just sort of on our own right now. Jesus said, I'm with you always. That's the church. I'm with you always to the end of the earth. So here's what happened, though. Is we have the idea that somehow Jesus did his thing and we were left here and we had to figure out what to do next and we sort of came up with the church. Actually, you never find Jesus without the church. Ever. Here's why. Look in his public ministry. There are very few things we find in all four Gospels. We find Jesus' baptism, okay? We find 
Uh, we find Jesus, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. We find, of course, his, his, death and, his death and resurrection. And we find Jesus walking on the water. The other thing we find right at the beginning after his baptism is he chooses disciples. It means from the very beginning, there's no Jesus without his proto-church. From the very beginning, there's not a moment where Jesus is just doing the Jesus thing and then later, hey, I need to get some, some people help out. No, from the very beginning, he calls people to be with him. There's never Jesus without the people. So we're organic. We're not people who came after Jesus, sort of came up with something. You know, we are. You know, we, we come from that original group. Okay. Uh, he gave them, the, and so the first thing, the proto-church, and Jesus gives this, the, them the same mission and authority he receives from the very beginning. Jesus said to them, peace again with you. As the Father sent me, I sent you. Wherever, whoever receives you receives me. You know, to receive the church is to receive Christ. So what lessons can we draw? It's impossible to separate Christ from his church. As I said before, Cyprian of Carthage said, to have God as your father instead of the church as your mother. That's a fact, whether, we, whether we're on good terms with our mother, uh, if we, maybe we've never met her. Maybe we've somehow got lost, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the tragedy of the Holocaust. Somehow we were separated from her, but we say, let's, here she is, she's alive. And she loves me. You know, so we have, it's impossible to separate Christ from his church. The church is a she. It's the body, it's, it's a living being, it's not an organization. We shouldn't confuse the church with polity. Polity means the, the it's like the, it's physiology. Like it's like this. Looking at church polity is like medicine looking at our human intimacy. You know, doctors can tell us about physiologically how intimacy works. But intimacy is, that's not intimacy. <laughs> They're missing the point. The intimacy is, is about people coming together, becoming one, giving new life. That's the fact, everything else. So to confuse embryology with sexuality is a terrible mistake. <laughs> and the same thing here is we shouldn't confuse organizational issues with the spiritual fact that the church is profoundly Jesus, his body, his living body, the Jesus who said, I'm with you always. I am with you always till the end of the earth. You know, the theme of Matthew's gospel is God, Emmanuel, God with us. And he ends. That's, so that same gospel says, I'm with you. So Christ has left us to be with us more closely. He sends his spirit, so he's with us now. Christ is with us now. Closer than he's with the apostles, because we have his spirit in us. Okay, and we say the science of the church, she's one. Her unity, what we do is we get out of the way to let the unity happen. This is essence of Anglicanism. We've always said we're only one part of the one Catholic apostolic church. Our job is to remove everything which is a barrier. That's the whole Lambeth quadrilateral movement, is everything that's a barrier. We, but we insist on the full gospel. We're Catholic. But everything that's unique are our little eccentricities, which everyone has. Like every, every sibling has their own things they do. You don't have to be that to be my brother or sister. You have to have the same DNA, but you don't have to, to like the same books or something. There's, there's, there's flexibility there. Holy, she makes, she's been made holy, and she is holy. She shares the very qualities of, of God, warmth and light, the light, warmth of light. How do you know a body, if you've been, I remember when I was at the death of my mother, is how I knew she had finally passed, she was in a deep coma at the end, is I felt her body go cold. You know, and I've been in more than one death, and that's one of the classic ways when they're really in a coma, that you, otherwise there's no visible, there's no, not the death rattles, that kind of stuff, is you just feel the, Suddenly, my dad was holding, he said, my dad had been around, had been a combat veteran, he said, she's gone. You know, <laughs> uh, you know the real, oh, it's, it's, so the warm, think of the warmth of this light, I saw the warmth and light. 
the warmth is life, where we have that we have true life. He, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, the, the, the warmth is the life, and the life is that, you know, the, the knowledge of God. She's Catholic, and that means she's comprehended the whole faith. And again, you can't have a portion. It's cancerous. If you have just a portion, it's going to have unhealthy growth and will actually kill your life rather than enhancing it, potentially. And also, we have across time and space. It's a real, not a, not a theoretical reality. It's a real, real, real human beings. A lot of people take the view towards the church that, you know, I love, you hear this, I love Jesus, it's just the church I don't like. These are like people who say, I love humanity, I just can't stand uh, people. And that's a dangerous thing because what that really means is they're, they're, they're kidding themselves. Forgive me, Bishop, but this is uh, something that's really important in a teaching we might miss that really changes things for us. And to me, it was, it's one of those life-changing things is we don't understand the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see, what happens there is the Jews were fundamentalists in a beautiful sense. They really believed the Bible meant what it said. And we don't correct it, we find out what it meant. So here's one of the things that the, the rabbis had talked about. In, in Exodus 19.17, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say love everybody as yourself. The rabbis say, God knows, we can't, we can't, we're not Pope Francis, we don't correct God, you know, correctly our father. You know, as God said, love your neighbor. He didn't say love, he must have meant something. From the rabbis, I, well, who is my neighbor? That's a serious question. And so the uh, question, you know, here is, that's what guys were saying to justify himself, even in the sense of saying, well, it wasn't a stupid question. Is, is some people said, well, your neighbor are people who are physically near or the part of the people of Israel, or it might be people living within a certain thing, but they came up with different definitions of who your neighbor is. So he said, okay, Lord, you say, okay, who is my neighbor? And here's the point Jesus made. He chose someone deliberately who didn't meet any of the categories. He was on a trip, so he didn't live anywhere nearby. He was on a trip. The, you know, the man who was there was on a trip. The Samaritan and the Jews certainly didn't live together. They couldn't. They didn't live anywhere near each other. The second thing is they weren't, they didn't share the same religion or the same people. Okay, there's nothing about that. They didn't live near, close to each other, they didn't have the same religion, they didn't share the same people. The only thing they had in common was being in the same place at the same time. So I think what Jesus is telling us in that parable is he's saying, you know, I'm not asking you to take care of all the problems of the world, we can't. We can often use that excuse for doing nothing. I'm asking you to take care of the one part of the world that comes across you right now. The people who hit your path at this moment, that's your neighbor. <laughs> and I think that empowers us. He's saying it's not this, I can't take care of the whole world. No, you can't. But this is the person you can feed. They're right here. This person is lonely. You, can talk, you can't do everybody, but you can do that. But my point is with the church, we sometimes do the same thing. The church is real people. It's the church of God at Corinth. It's not a perfect place. The church at Corinth has problems. But if we meet Jesus, we're gonna, the church is not despite the people in it. The church, that's where God works. And so we can't use an excuse. The church isn't holy enough. I will mention it. One of the American people who came over uh, in, in... Look, next time. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I went. I'll leave it with this. Next time is very important as well. It's, yeah. But what we have to worry about is this guy was in one of the early Baptist, early Baptist leaders in America. Good, good people. But they had broken away from the Puritans. And then they kept breaking and breaking down until finally he was left, he and his wife were the only people holy enough to be in the church. But then she wasn't holy enough. And uh, so in our family, I don't want to mention the guy's name because he is a known person. I don't want to take away from him. He's a good man. 
uh, then our family a joke would be this. What's this? So-and-so blessing, blessing the crowds. <laughs> so just remember, part of the church is, with all of our failings, the church is real people in space and time and space. You know, we don't use the, we don't say, because I love this beautiful church, I hate the, the people in here because they're not, no, no. To love Christ is to love his church with all the warts, with everything that is to be present.